Ciao a tutti! Welcome back to the Bullshit Filter! Trevor Bell, how are you, Trevor Bell? I'm well, Cam. It's a pleasure to be back on your fine podcast and an honour. Thank you for the invitation again. You're welcome. I did uh, invite Ray to join us. For people wondering, like Ian Kath asked me yesterday, have you and Ray had a falling out? No, it's just that I say to Ray, listen, uh, Trevor's coming on the show uh, to talk about this. Do you want to turn up? And Ray's like, ah, well, if you've got someone else there, I don't need to bother really. So... That's Ray, Ray and his infamous work ethic. But no, Ray and I are very much in love, uh, still doing all of our other shows uh, and having a having a great time. Um, before we get into uh, the next part of this COVID series where we're going to be talking about lockdowns and whether or not they work, uh, tell me about the Church of Satan, Trevor. I missed your show on Thursday night. What happened with your Supreme Court Yes. High Court. Is it the High Court or the Supreme Court? I Supreme can never remember. Court. So in the state of Queensland, our highest court is the Supreme Court. So right. before Justice Burns, we appeared. Does and it? Can you get a cream for that? <laughs> if Justice Burns, you get a cream. Topical cream. Yeah. It was a tough, gruelling day, I have to say. It was not easy by any, by any stretch of the imagination. So there was... Um, so yeah, just to remind a- people from last <laughs> week, you were appearing as the lawyer for the Church of Satan. Well, actually, arguing- I was appearing in my own right. I was the applicant myself. I wasn't representing oh. the Church of Satan because I am going to be one of the teachers. So I was the actual oh. applicant in this matter. Oh, yes. it's so we Bell were up- versus the state of Queensland. Indeed. Exactly. That is exactly right. <laughs> and the, the state of Queensland put up the Solicitor General and that is the second highest lawmaker in the land beneath the Attorney General. So they came out with all guns blazing and they who, certainly, who was, they certainly the, whacked what, me over the head a few times. What's the name of the Solicitor General that you were... I can't, uh, I can't even remember his name, but he didn't like oh. the look or smell of us at all. He clearly disapproved of us and thought we were the greatest time wasters the court had ever seen and just and was very were, disapproving. You were arguing for the right of the Church of Satan, of which you will be a teacher, to uh, go to Queensland schools and mm. uh, teach religion as part of the religious education program that is enshrined in the legislation of Queensland that says religions, all religions have the opportunity to teach at uh, public schools in Queensland. Correct. It was testing an equal rights sort of concept, and it's the, it's yeah. the Noosa Temple of Satan for anyone wanting to go online and buy some merchandise. Uh, Noosa right. Temple of Satan. Right. So there was one. There's one moment, Cam, that you would like, and so during our um, promotional activities over time, uh, the spiritual leader, um, Brother Samuel Demo Gorgon, otherwise known as Robin Bristow, when he appears, he often wears a black coat 
and he has a plastic skull that he bought from a $2 shop as part of his, um, as his appearance when he conducts religious rituals. And uh, during the cross-examination, the, um, the Solicitor General, um, the barrister, was basically attacking Robin, sort of mocking him a bit and... And saying can't it in a sort why. of a disapproving can't way. Can't, to say, can't understand why. <laughs> yeah, to say you turned up in front of the school, you were handing out flyers, you were there in in your black robes, and Robin chipped in and said, yes, much like the one you're wearing now. <laughs> oh, that reminds me of uh, uh, what's his face? Omar in The mm. Wire. Remember that line? Did you watch the no. line? Your wife and oh, well then, anyway, yeah. Tell your it story. Was quite, Go on. It was quite a moment because it was quite a tense cross examination where he was. They really went for him quite hard. So a, a kudos to Robert. I mean, I'm not as a solicitor of the court meant to approve such conduct by a witness, and the judge certainly pounced on him and said, "Hey, hey, we'll have none of that in this court. Thank you very much." But. Yeah, it was a bit of unnecessary disapproval by the barrister and Robin sort of bit back and it was an interesting moment anyway. So that was well, that was possibly yeah, the, the other, highlight. <laughs> yeah. But, of course, priests appear in robes uh, exactly. with all of their religious paraphernalia. I don't know if they go to schools wearing that, but it's, yes. you know, they go, they, they appear in their robes all the time. We accept yeah. Priests of every denomination, you know, your Greek Orthodox wear pretty heavy-looking robes and mm. your, your Muslim imams have robes, your Catholic priests have robes. So what's the big yeah. deal of wearing a robe? And the irony is that he, Robin was accused of wanting to disrupt school time by conducting these religious lessons. And the whole point is we're trying to stop the disruption of thousands of classes every day by conducting this action. So... They didn't seem to get that. But anyway, the, the judge decided to um, reserve his decision. So he's going away and reading all of the material and having a think about it. And who knows, it could be two or three weeks or four or five, just depends how busy he is. So the short answer is we don't know the result, although I'm not particularly confident at this stage, Cam. So. Well, with you as with you representing yourself as a lawyer, I can understand why. Well, uh, according yeah. to the Brisbane Times, Temple member Trevor, Trevor Bell, who acted as legal counsel on Thursday, previously told Brisbane Times that if Satanists could not teach religious instruction, then no religions should be allowed into state schools as the classes were a waste of class time. Okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. Mm. So there's a lot of media afterwards. I had a lot of interviews. And mm. some of them back here videotaping mm. stuff. So, mm. Mm. yeah, so there we go. I had uh, the Compass program from ABC were, were oh, filming me as I Compass. did my podcast. Have you ever been filmed wow. as you podcasted, Cam? Have you ever done that, been filmed yeah, by media well, Yeah, well, 60 Minutes spent a whole day with me in 2006. Okay. Uh, never went to where. Here we go. See, I thought I was doing a bit of a first, and meanwhile the pod father has beaten me by 15 years. Oh, just, well, I'm that far never behind. Went, never went to air, though, I mean, because the fucking Penguins documentary came out and they bumped me for a segment on Penguins. But I got to spend a day with Tracy Curo, so that was all good. Um, uh, do your listeners really want all this stuff? We should move on. <laughs> they actually they actually filmed me riding around Melbourne on a tram, recording a podcast on a tram. I had my laptop and little portable microphone back then, and they're like, Cameron can work from anywhere. Here he is doing a podcast on a tram. I don't know wow. why that didn't go to air. Like, that was killer. Killer stuff. <laughs> 
filler content. All right. <laughs> well, congratulations. I hope uh, hope it goes well for you. I'm sure it was uh, an experience, never the, nonetheless. Yes. I would love mm. Compass to come and talk to me about my fucking film. They'll talk to you about doing a Church of Satan stunt. I made an entire documentary on Christianity. No, nothing from Compass. Well, I never reached out to them. Maybe I should do that. All right, let's get on to lockdowns, Trevor. Um, the big question that you raised in our last episode is whether or not lockdowns work. That's what I hear all the time. Lockdowns don't work. Lockdowns do work. But as I said last time, I think the first question that brings to mind is how do we define work? That mm. can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And I think this is partly where some of the frustration uh, comes and where some of the debate comes into it. Um, it's a bit like when I get into discussions with people about free will. You know, I like to quote Plato, the definition of terms is the beginning of wisdom. So we have to talk about what we mean by work. What do you mean by work when you talk about lockdowns, Ray, mm, mm. the second? Other Ray? Yes. Well, the way I think of it is what are they intended to do and do they achieve that intended purpose? And if they do, then they work. And so there'll be arguments about what they're intended to do. And I think uh, initially the idea of lockdowns was to buy time to flatten the curve so that hospitals would not be overwhelmed. That was the initial uh, sort of purpose or intention of lockdowns to slow the spread so that the hospitals wouldn't be inundated and overrun. And then in Australia and New Zealand and places that went for eradication, lockdown's purpose morphed into actually eradicating the virus in, in our areas. And now, um, of course, in Australia at this very moment, uh, 16th of August 2021, um, it's come back and throughout New South Wales and probably reached the point where they're never going to eradicate it now because of just uh, the spread in, in that state. So now we're at a point where perhaps the purpose of the lockdowns now is to buy time until people enough people can get vaccinated. So I would say that its purpose has changed slightly over time, but in a sense it's always been about buying time and slowing down the spread of the virus and, and clearly it achieves that purpose. I think, based on all the data I've seen and all the graphs I've looked at, that it, it definitely achieves uh, a slowdown of the spread of the virus if it's enforced in any meaningful way and done in any meaningful way. All right, Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Hitler. What What's that got to do with if you're going to put in a, a Ray soundboard, you've got to use a, a quote that's relevant, Cam, to what I've just said. Want to make your country great again? Get a fascist. <laughs> well, because people people who protesting lockdowns like to compare any politician who declares a lockdown a fascist. Look at what they're saying about uh, Andrews down in Victoria for the last uh, six months. He's yes. a fascist, according yes. to the right wing Murdoch media. <laughs> yeah, but so, so the, so the counter argument to lockdowns, and of course I'm jumping ahead here, Cam, but just to put things in perspective, get a little the little context is that. I think people were initially the anti-lockdown people. There was a, a, a sizable number of them who were trying to say lockdowns don't work in that they don't actually slow the spread of the virus. And we've had enough 
actual data and proof of that now, that they've kind of given up on that particular argument. And the counter-argument is now that either A, it costs too much in terms of cost to our society, in terms of economy and health, et cetera, or, or in addition, it's a breach of our civil liberties, hence your Hitler quote can have some relevance at this point, if you'd like to run it again. <laughs> All right, Hitler. <laughs> Nazi sexy. <laughs> love it. Love it. Hello. <laughs> I can keep going all day. Yeah, okay. So I think you've summarised it well. Like um, when we say work, do we mean that uh, lockdowns stop the virus from spreading? And if that's what we mean, do we mean 100% stops it spreading 100% or it stops it spreading enough that we can get a handle on it, we can slow it down. Is it? Uh, do we mean that the net benefit of a lockdown is greater or not greater than the sum total of the economic, emotional, and psychological cost to the population by a lockdown? I think at the end of the day, it's all about lives, right? That's regardless of what side of the debate you're on. When we're talking about whether or not lockdowns work, it's about lives you know we're trying to measure does having a lockdown save lives or does it hurt lives and in some cases lose lives and and we're trying to figure out which approach has a higher net benefit to the population now of course I'm assuming here that all of the people that argue, against and for lockdowns are doing so from a position of genuine sincerity. They're not uh, just uh, 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 using sound bites from this media source or that media source to prop up an existing uh, cognitive bias that they have about the government's lying to us and big farmers manipulating us or corrupt uh, doctors are uh, trying to, uh, I don't know, whatever, insert Bill Gates microchips into our brains or something like that. But I think at the end of the day, most people, if they're being genuine, they are trying to talk about what produces the best net benefit to the population. And that is a question then, I think, of a combination of facts and values. What are the facts around lockdowns and what do we value as a society? How do we measure the facts? How do we measure the values? And as we said last week, there are even we're always going to we're always going to have debates around values, right? Because people have different values. Although I think generally speaking, what my experience has been is that if you get into a conversation with someone, you can take someone from the far left and someone from the far right. And this used to be a thing in the, in the cigar lounge that I used to run a lot. Most of the customers were on the far right and I was on the left. And so my when we were sitting down over a glass of scotch and a cigar uh, in, an, on an, in an afternoon, as was my want in those days, <laughs> Topics would go to politics, and and I we would both state positions that were vastly different. And what I would spend the next hour and a half trying to do is try and figure, try and reduce our positions down to the base common elements, and try and find some common ground. And what I what I found is at the end of the day, we tended to have the same values, the same morals, and we pretty much wanted the same thing. It's just that the way of getting there, what we thought was the right approach to getting to that thing differed. And once once you can agree on values, 
then it's a question of tactics. Then you can have a, 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 a genuine discussion about tactics and the values thing is out of the way. But getting back to facts, like, yeah, so there's always going to be debates over values, but there's also going to be, de- we, we, we can't even agree on the facts. And, and as I think you said last time on the show, generally speaking, most of us don't understand statistical analysis. We don't get, unless you, you do that for a living and you get trained at university, most of us are not very good at statistical analysis. We don't understand numbers, really. Most of us aren't very good at numbers at all. And we're not very good at scientific data. I don't think there's a very, I think a big failing of the education system in this country and in most of the Western world, apparently, is we don't really understand the scientific process very well. It's kind of depressing after, you know, uh, centuries of trying to uh, embolden the scientific process that still most people don't seem to understand. The, just the basics of, of how it works, what it's designed to do. Like I said last week, people say, well, there's debate amongst the scientists. Yeah, yeah, that's how it works. This isn't. This should not be a shock to you. And, of course, the other one you always hear, particularly when you're debating religious people, is, well, it's only a theory. Yeah, mm. that's how science works. It's always a theory because mm. we never, you know, say, well, this is absolutely true because we know that we this shit we don't know. We might learn something tomorrow and it might upend everything. And people say, uh, um, well, there isn't 100% consensus of the scientists and and I guess that's the key point I wanted to make last week is, yeah, that's the great thing about science. It's always open to new data and new new interpretations of the old data. So hooray for you if you found a scientist who disagrees with the mainstream consensus. Does that mean he or she is wrong? No. But that, does that mean he or she is right? Also, no. You know, it's it's important, as we said last time, that we look for the consensus. Now, again, that doesn't mean that the consensus is necessarily right. That's that's how science works. It's always open to new data, new interpretations. But why would you, if you're looking at a particular question, and there's a body of scientists who are, again, I have to point this out too, they have to be scientists that are actively working in the field, ideally that are published. They're, they're not you know, just random scientists uh, whose, whose specialty isn't in the discipline that you're discussing. They've got to be active in the actual field. Um, if you had a group of 100 scientists and 90 of them said it was A, they thought the answer was A, and 10 of them said the answer was B, which would you believe? Why, you know, why would you believe B and not A? It, mm. it, it, unless you, it's possible, but you'd have to have really, really strong reasons uh, for why you think the majority are wrong and the minority is right. And it, it, if people do have that kind of, very, very strong evidence. I'm happy, always happy to hear it. But what I found in discussing a lot of scientific uh, topics with people over the decades is when they are siding with the minority, if you ask them why and to back it up, they really tend not to have a very strong argument for why. Mm, Just a gut view, yeah. But we're really in this camp, we're facing two scenarios quite often when, when I'm having these discussions with people about lockdowns is what is our civilization like with a lockdown in place and what would it be like if we didn't have the lockdown in place and 
People who are anti-lockdown, I find, tend to imagine that the world would return to what it was like back in 2019. They don't want to take into account that with the lockdown lifted, there's going to be a huge spread of the virus, a lot of people sick and dying, and that's going to have a lot of consequences which they don't want to recognise. They seem to want to compare our, our lockdown phase at the moment versus what we were in 2019. And that's one of the frustrating things is trying to, to say what we would be in without a lockdown. And the other thing is, of course, it's not just about lives in terms of how many people die. It's that quality of life calculation that comes into it. And people will say, well, most of the people who die are quite elderly. They've only got a couple of years left in a nursing home. Meanwhile, people in their 20s are missing out on all the adventures and fun parts of life that they'll never get back again. So uh, this sort of calculation of quality of life is very, very difficult to measure. Even our current quality of life is difficult to measure, let alone try and measure what it would be like in a hypothetical scenario. So um, the other thoughts I have about this, Cam, are when you talk about scientists and the competing views, is which branch of science? Because I think the medical fraternity are very skilled in how disease works and how infection spreads, but they tend to stray into areas of economics and, you know, they're not necessarily trained in what the effect of these things is on economics. And when you're talking about the economy and how it would um, perform in different scenarios, well, why are we listening to medical people in that regard? Uh, and that's quite often a, a sort of the medicos are straying into the uh, economics area. And mm. I, I heard this argument that... Um, Obviously, epidemiologists deal a lot with data, so they're used to dealing with data. But your average GP, it's it's like a vocational trade when you become a doctor. You, you're not doing the sorts of things you would do in an arts degree or a management degree. It's quite a vocational-based um, degree, you know, sewing people up and injecting them and whatnot. So some of the sorts of things that are commonly understood by a lot of university graduates, maybe they don't do that much of when they're doing medicine. So that's just some of the... Thoughts I have about the topic, Cam. Right. Yeah. So you know when we're when we're trying to get an understanding of you know a situation like COVID, which is very complex because uh, it does you you know it does bring into play medical aspects, economic aspects, uh, psychological a aspects, um, which I guess is sort of a branch of medicine. Um, it, it, it is complex. There's a lot of different people that have the right to weigh in on a lot of different aspects of it. And none of us, or most of us, aren't experts on all of those subjects, if any of them. So it puts us in a bit of a quandary where we, we, we've got to try and uh, balance up who do we listen to across a number of different fields and why are we going to listen to those people. Can I give and, you the, the, uh, the quick and dirty answer on how to calculate all this sort of stuff? Please. Perhaps, perhaps is in opinion polls because if people are asked what's their preference, then they are doing a calculation of their own personal circumstance and whether they think they're better off under the lockdown that they're in compared to the situation they would be in if they were not in lockdown and they're doing a calculation of their own personal circumstance and which is better for their personal flourishing 
And an opinion poll is really an amalgamation of all that. So it's kind of uh, a bit of a calculation, uh, in a sense, of, of what the population has calculated as the cost-benefit analysis. So if the opinion polls are overwhelmingly in favour of a lockdown, it's just because people have done the calculation themselves um, and that's what they've arrived at. Like it's potentially not a bad way of looking at it. If the the people are fully informed when they're, you know, and the opinion poll isn't contaminated by all sorts of things, but there's some merit to it. Yeah, you're going. Well, it's a wisdom of the crowds kind of thing, but it really, does the does the crowd really know anything about what they should or shouldn't be thinking about these subjects? Well, I'm just saying that people are taking a selfish view, presumably, quite often. But based own. on based on what level of knowledge? Correct. You're, they you're could right. They're completely ignorant when they're taking that selfish view. They could be. They could hmm. be. I'm not saying it's an ironclad argument. You're starting to sound like Justice Burns giving me a hard time the other day. My, my wife does often accuse me of being a lawyer, of, of, of you know, act, acting like a lawyer in our uh, conversations as husband and wife. Hmm. Um, well, look, I, look I'm, I guess the opinion polls and election results, like when we went to the polls, uh, when was that? Earlier this year, late last year? In the States, I can't even remember how long ago that was. It all sort of blurs together. But the uh, incumbent premiers tended to get a big uh, round of applause for the way they handled the first wave um, Mm. in in our respective states. So I guess that's a form of an opinion poll Mm. by the people. But, again, I don't necessarily know that the people really know uh, what's going on here. They, They have their opinions which they express in the opinion polls and in elections, but whether or not their opinions are worth two cents, I don't know. Mm. So, so are we okay. concluding that, that lockdowns actually work? Are we going to argue that point at all or we're, we're not? We're just a, we're happy to move on and say they do? Yeah. No, that's what, oh. we're, that's what we're here for. So, all right. look. Oh, come on, move <laughs> along. Chop, chop. The listeners want to know the answer. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Well, look, I think um, – As you said earlier, lockdowns obviously help stop transmission at some level, Uh, you know, and even Australia reported very low flu deaths last year. There hasn't been a single flu death reported in 2021, and there were less than 40 flu deaths reported in 2020, which compares to more than 800 in 2019. Uh, Now, when you ask the Department of Health, why? What happened to the flu? They say that, uh, well, obviously it's got to do, and this is the opinion of the AMA as well, it's got to do with a combination of shutting down international travel, lockdowns plus PPE, and vaccination rates for the flu were massively up in 2020. Confirmed flu cases fell from 300,000 in 2019 to 21,215 in 2020. And I've seen a few guys on Facebook go, oh, look at that. Like uh, all these people, what happened to the flu? It just disappeared. There's no flu. What? That's magic. Look. Uh, But it doesn't seem that mysterious. Uh, Yeah. Everyone was locked in their houses for winter and, uh, you know, PPE and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it had a big impact. So, lockdowns even stopped us from getting the flu last year and people dying from the flu. 
But let's point out that back in March 2020, um, governments were faced with having to make quick decisions based on limited data. We had data coming in from China, a little bit from Diamond Princess, for a little bit from Italy, but we really didn't know what we were dealing with very, very well. And they had to make some quick decisions. Should we shut down or stay open like Sweden did or something in between? But I want to look at, I want to drill down into this whole cost benefit analysis of whether or not lockdowns work. Because in terms of a simple answer, we, you know, when we use modeling to work out how many people would die if COVID was left to run rampant, as you were saying before, it's like if we didn't do lockdowns, it's not 2019. It's, it's a, a society where COVID is just left to um, do whatever it wants. Modeling is obviously tricky when we're trying to work that out. Lots of models are wrong. Neil Ferguson, who's a mathematical epidemiologist at Imperial College in London, started working on COVID models in January 2020. His team's model indicated that the UK's health service would be overwhelmed with COVID-19 cases and could face more than 500,000 deaths if the government took no action which forced Boris Johnson into pushing them into lockdowns early in 2020. Same sort of modelling suggested that with no action, the United States was looking at 2.2 million deaths. And this is all based on data from China. Now, researchers initially estimated that 15% of hospital cases resulting from COVID would need to be treated in the ICU. But then when they got new data from China, they upped that to 30%. They uh, announced that on the 16th of March, 2020. So 30% of hospitalizations from COVID would result in the ICU. Now, in the UK, that model showed that the UK's ICUs, which only had 4,000 ICU beds across the country, would be quickly overwhelmed. And I remember when we, when Ray and I did our shows early last year, uh, same sort of thing. I think all up, Australia had 160,000 hospital beds, pulling that out of my memory. Um, and the modelling at the time showed that if COVID just ran rampant, we'd have 160,000 people in hospital within a couple of months with COVID. So those hospital beds are normally mostly full anyway, of people sick from various things. We just literally didn't have 160,000 extra beds or people to staff those beds, doctors and nurses and, and uh, you know, mm. people but, who but, do intubing in whatever. Yes, but the people who are anti-lockdown would say, ah, yes, Cam, but at least the economy would still be going and all those shops and businesses would still be operating and... Uh, so, yeah, people might die, but at least the economy would still be going. It's, it's literally what people will say if they're anti-lockdown. I know. But, of course, then you ask the question, right, so let's, let's play through that scenario. There's 160,000 people in hospital with COVID, um, tens of thousands of people dead. Also, okay, so if you've got 160,000 in hospital, uh, you've got how many that are sick with COVID, hundreds and hundreds of thousands. Uh, really, really sick, like not just um, 
you know, mild flu. A lot of people that'll get it that'll be asymptomatic, at least initially. A lot of people who will get it and will be sick. The, the effect of the economy and all of that happening, of people not wanting to go to work, not wanting to risk it, not wanting to go outside, self-imposed lockdowns, then what happens with their employment status in a self-imposed lockdown? How do we cover that? It's a, it's a really complicated uh, scenario when you start to drill into it. And I haven't really, I don't know if you've come across anyone who's modelled what that looks like from an economic perspective, but it seems like a complete mess. We saw in Sweden where, you know, it ran okay for a little while and then it all fell over and collapsed. Well, the sort of studies I've seen where they've compared countries with their economies and then looked at uh, how well they had handled the virus and, and really the ones who had a fairly um, lenient um, lockdown allowed the virus uh, to a lot more scope to, to uh, infect people, Th- those countries invariably had the worst performing economies. So the, the, the countries that managed to control the virus tended to have the best performing economies. So we really have enough sort of experience and data now that we can say, well, just look at the last 12 months of these major, you know, top 45 countries and have a look at what happened. And, and the ones who did the best job of locking down and controlling the virus ended up having the best economies. So that's, that's kind of your answer there. Mm. And yeah. that even goes... Uh, you know, there's always risks in comparing across countries, but yes. also I saw a study within America in terms of the different states. So, you know, comparing states that had uh, controlled the virus better than other states and the ones with the better control tended to have better performing economies. Mind you, even internally within the United States, there's such a variation in culture that, uh, you know, you still take all that with a grain of salt as well. But uh, I think the sort of... Again, the people who are anti-lockdown initially were saying, well, um, lockdowns don't work and now it's been proven that in fact they do. Then they were saying, well, you know, economically we'd be better without lockdowns and the evidence looking over the last 18 months is showing, well, in fact, economically you're better off with lockdowns. And really they're tending now to resort to this hard-to-calculate area of 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 human happiness and and uh, flourishing, it's a tricky one to calculate where there's no hard and fast numbers. Yeah. And again, looking back to early 2020, governments had to make some pretty quick decisions based on limited data of what would happen. They obviously were listening to their advisory committees, advisory boards on what they should do. Pretty sure that... Um, you know, your, your governments on the right, uh, your Scott Morrisons, your Boris Johnsons, your Donald Trumps didn't want to shut down their economies uh, and lockdowns at all, and yet they did. You know that when a right-wing government uh, shuts down an economy, they, they must be pretty convinced that this is the best thing for the economy is to shut down the economy. A left, a left government, uh, if, if such a thing exists anywhere in the world these days outside of Cuba, uh, would uh, maybe a little be maybe more easy to put the people ahead of the economy. But a right-wing government, you've got to be pretty convinced 
unless there's some grand conspiracy theory. It's like the, the conversation I've had with a few people in the last month or so is like, okay, so wait, wait, wait. You're telling me that you believe that every government in the world, from Australia to the United States, China, Russia, uh, Venezuela, Cuba, Sweden, Kazakhstan, all came together mm. from <laughs> yeah, Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, Donald Trump, Scott Morrison, and Boris Johnson, and uh, <laughs> Maduro yeah. all got together. And Sweden wasn't invited. <laughs> got together and agreed that a cunning plan would be to shut down all of their economies for mm. extended periods of time uh, based on some sort of uh, fake uh, uh, fear around. I don't think these people could agree on a lunch order, mm. let alone. And, and over what period of time did they agree on this? Like, mm. Before before it hit China, because I remember when China first locked down Wuhan, all the Western media and the Western governments were pointing their fingers at China and going, "Oh, look at this! This is what you get in an authoritarian country. You know, that's very heavy-handed lockdowns. That would never happen in the West because we have freedom." And within about three months, we were all like, we're looking down, we're looking down, everyone looking down. I was like, hold on, I thought only authoritarian communist governments did that. Oh, we're all on board now. So at what point did they all get together and decide this was a good idea when they were laughing at China for doing it or three months later when they all decided, no, no, it's really a good idea, we should all do that? Yeah, but why would people believe in a conspiracy like that, Ken? Why would they? Why? Yes. Well, yeah, that's really that's a that's a whole different uh, discussion. I think we should leave for part four of this show, oh, Trevor. Is sorry. why people okay. why people uh, you know lean towards conspiracy theories, right? Okay, let's let's stick with uh, whether or not these things work for now. So uh, we can look at Sweden. Like Sweden's economy um, has recovered. It did recover uh, early this year, got back to pre-COVID levels. Um, but, you know, the Australian economy and the US economy also, I think, have done as well. If I, I, I haven't drilled down into the economic figures, but if I look at how the Dow Jones, if I take the Dow Jones and the All Ords as indicators of where the economy is at, they're both at all-time highs. Okay, this is I know where that's people just one hmm. measure of the economy, but it's uh, yeah. it's a it's a common one, right? How it's, it's doing? Okay, so Sweden's a good example of how people can distort the figures. So if you were anti-lockdown and you were wanting to use Sweden as an example, you would take the Swedish economy and you would compare it with the average of um, uh, the European Union, and that then takes into account you know countries like Spain and Greece and and whatnot. So at, at that point, you'll find that Sweden's actually performed relatively well. But really, the better comparison would be with its Nordic neighbours, such as Norway and Finland and Denmark. That, that's, that's who you really should be comparing them with as a fairer comparison. And if you do that, then their economy has performed much worse. And, of course, their death rate 
as a percentage of population is a lot worse. So this is where people pick and choose figures and um, and sample from what will be most appropriate. So the saying is, Cam, that if you torture the data long enough, it will confess to anything. And this happens a lot with Sweden. Uh, so if you want to make Sweden look good, you just compare it to a sample that uh, is going to be worse rather than a sample that's more appropriate. So the other thing with Sweden is uh, there's a thing called the um, Blavatnik Index. Have you heard of that at nope. all? Oh, I thought you did some study on this, Cam. Like we're talking lockdowns and you haven't, you're not aware of the Blavatnik in- Index. Okay. Oh, so, Blavatnik. I thought you yes. said Lovatnik. Blavatnik. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah all okay. I'm all over Blav. Yeah. The Blav. So that's the... So that's the stringency index. So typically uh, you can create a, a graph which which shows how different countries, the strictness of their lockdowns, are they closing schools, are they closing businesses, are they keeping people at home between what hours, what's the social distancing rules, et cetera. It's the government rules that are in place and you can uh, follow this index and compare the, the stringency of different governments with their lockdowns. And what you'll actually find with Sweden, well, well, this, that index is extremely dangerous to use because it only records government laws mandated things. But if your population voluntarily undertakes things, that, that isn't shown in that stringency index. Circling back to Sweden, Of course, Sweden in the early days seemed to have a relatively relaxed approach to lockdowns. They did have some restrictions, but if you actually look at, say, the last six months, the the stringency index will show you that Sweden has basically come into line with the other countries in terms of the stringency of its government-mandated lockdowns. So... When people start looking at graphs now of Sweden, it's not this uh, great libertarian experiment anymore. It's, in fact, operating under very similar rules as Germany and a whole bunch of other places. So uh, so Sweden is a really tricky example where people need to know what is actually happening on the ground and to determine you need a good intimate knowledge of the culture and the people. And just coming back to the Australian um Example, can I can I can I yes. stop you there for a second on the mm. Sweden thing? So I've mm. got the Blavatnik open in front of me. Um, it says that as of today, so mid August twenty twenty one, Sweden's stringency index score is thirty seven point oh four, with hundred being the strictest. Australia's is sixty eight point oh six. The United States is forty nine point five four. The UK is 38.43, about the same as Sweden. Yeah. What's Norway, Denmark, Finland, Germany? What are they? Uh, well, Germany's 59.26. France is 55.09. Finland is 43.98. Norway is 47.22. All quite a bit higher than Sweden. But my point was going to be if I go back to May of 2020... Uh, Sweden's was 64.81, Australia was 69.44, UK was 79.63, US was 72.69. 
So not much really between them. The rest, Sweden, a little bit lower score than Australia's, but not by much. Germany was 66.2. So it looks like they were much more stringent back then and they've sort of become less over time. Um, Towards the end of 2020, though, they were more strict than their neighbours. They were in in, um, December 1st, 2020, Sweden was 64, Norway was 56, Finland was 46, Australia was 62, uh, less than Sweden. Then mm. so it goes up and down depending on what mm. you know what wave and, they're in. I think yeah. And if you look at um, sort of data with um, mobile phones, they're able to look at how much people were moving around with mobile phone data. And yeah, uh, I think I saw something where while the stringency index might have been less, the actual movement of people was the same because people had voluntarily decided not to move around. So yeah. there's, there's, a, there's a lot of factors going to, to, to trying to work out the quality of a lockdown and it's a combination of government um, rules, the, the culture and the propensity of people to voluntarily lock down and a bunch of other factors. So in Australia at the moment, we've got, according to the Department of Health, um, let's see, 400, 700, 800, about 850 people in hospital uh, as a result of COVID-19. Um, most of those are in New South Wales, 379 people in hospital in New South Wales as a result of COVID at the moment. 62 of those, so roughly, uh, you know, well, a little bit less than 20%, are uh, in ICU. Yeah. Uh, now, that's when they're supposed to be in lockdown. This is, what, week seven of mm. lockdown, and they've got that many people in hospital. I can only imagine how many people they would have in hospital if they weren't in lockdown. Yeah. Uh, and, and this whole thing about hospitals, the uh, hospitals being overrun and overwhelmed, the trickle-on effects of that, so you're taking people out of the economy, people who you know, need surgery or other sort of medical care can't get it because the hospitals are overwhelmed. You have your medical staff being exposed every day to the virus, some of them getting sick and having to get infected. They have to, can't go to work, so we're down doctors and nurses, or they themselves get sick and end up in hospital and sometimes in the ICU and sometimes dying around the world. We've seen that happening what's the impact to the economy when you know your frontline medical staff are all sick and uh, out of action or dying on you that's not good we haven't mm. even started to talk about the effects of long covid on a population yet which we're still starting to understand but mm. it's just one uh, final thought on the on just yeah. quality of lockdowns before I, I get off that hobby horse and even in Australia, you can compare Victoria and New South Wales. So Victoria got up to 700 cases a day, had a lockdown, and eventually got it down to zero. And so, you know, that's always been my argument to people who said lockdowns don't work, actually work to stop the virus. And I say, well, explain Melbourne to me then. And they sort of go, oh, I don't know, <laughs> not sure how it happened. But then you could look at uh, New South Wales at the moment where uh, they've sort of hit about 400 as a maximum and they've now given up and they've said we're never going to get to zero and we're really just filling in time now until we can get enough vaccinations. So 
both states entering a lockdown as such but ending up with a different result and it all is to do with minor things in terms of quality and also did you nip it in the bud quite quick enough? You know, arguably the New South Wales lockdown isn't as severe because Melbourne had like a curfew. You couldn't go out. Uh, There's been no curfew in New South Wales. Maybe they could have got away with that but they left it too late and it had spread too much into the community. Just the tiniest little incremental changes in some of these factors can make all the difference. One little super spreader here or there. So there we go. I'm off my hobby horse now about quality of lockdowns. It's a tricky thing to compare and um, and rely on lockdowns because it's in terms of comparing them with between countries. Yeah. And you're right, there are a lot of different factors. Comparing even state by state, like Queensland has done a great job, I think. We've had our short, sharp lockdowns and we've been relatively unscathed uh, so far from COVID. But of course, you know, we've got a much lower population density in Brisbane than Sydney and Melbourne have. We've got a big state, people are spread out. Um, so there are a lot of different, it's also warmer climate. We've got a lot of different, different factors that come into play, I'm sure. But going back to early 2020, um, you know, a lot of governments around the world, I think in the early stages, thought that they would just protect the oldest in society, everyone else would get it, most of them would recover and we'd have herd immunity quickly and we'd just move through it like that. And for a while, uh, and even up until recently when I was talking to you, that still seemed like a good idea to me, like just protect the people, the elderly and the people with, um, you know, pre-existing conditions, comorbidities, a word mm. that no, no one had ever used before March of 2020, um, and let everyone else go out there and get on with things. But then uh, the more I thought about it, and you prompted me to think about this when we were talking a few weeks ago, is, okay, well, how does that work then? Um First of all, a lot of people with pre-existing conditions may not know they have pre-existing conditions, but even for the people who know that they have pre-existing conditions, what do they do? They just stay at home for how long? Um, and uh, how do they get groceries? How do they do their work? Uh, the elderly, who looks after the elderly? If they're, if they're in a retirement home or a care facility, you know, who are the staff? Do the staff come and go? How does that work? Are they going out, catching the virus, going home, and then coming back and <laughs> giving it to the elderly? Do they have to just get locked into the care facility? What about and the majority of elderly people? As I've got some numbers here coming up soon, live at home with their families. Mm. So what happens to their families then? How do you how do you protect them? How do you protect people? It, it 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 it's difficult when you drill down into how that would work. It's definitely uh, not an easy solution. To it's come an up easy with. thing to say. Oh, we'll protect the vulnerable, and that's what the Great Barrington Declaration says, mm. which is, mm. oh, we should just uh, protect the vulnerable. Of course, wouldn't want them to die, and um, and then let everybody else do what they want. But it's it's an easy thing to say and a very difficult thing to do. Mm. Mm. But by March of 2020, late March in 2020, um, most uh, governments in the West decided that the best thing to do was to implement 
lockdowns to certain stages. Um, what's his face? Um, who am I quoting here? Oh, yeah, okay. Getting back to Neil Ferguson, um, the guy from London who did the modelling the, a lot of the governments were looking at in uh, early 2020. He said by late 2020, late March 2020, he said he was reasonably confident that if restrictions in the UK were put into place, deaths would max out at 20,000. They're currently nearly 130,000. So um, the modelling and the restrictions didn't work out as well as even the chief modeller in the UK thought they would in early 2020. He also, by the way, had to quit his government role in May 2020 when... During lockdown, his uh, girlfriend paid him a visit at his apartment for several nights. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Ghost Ray. Hello. And uh, <laughs> he, uh, his excuse was that he had already had the virus. When he was doing the modelling, he caught the virus <laughs> and he had recovered and she had recorded and recovered, so he figured they were both safe. But still, it sort of sent the wrong message when the guy that was advocating for strict lockdowns had his girlfriend come and pay him a visit and got caught out. Mm. Um, anyway, back to models. No, he didn't go back to dating models. I mean, anyway. Mm. You hear people say the models were wrong. I get that a lot. The models are wrong. Well, again, duh. Models are usually wrong. Anyone who's yep. ever done any modelling, I think be, you said this last time. Yeah, yeah, headline, a model was right would be really when <laughs> yeah. what should happen. <laughs> any any business plan I've ever done, and I've been involved in lots of startups, <laughs> as you know, and particularly if you're trying to raise capital, if, you, you know, if you're in one of those sort of startups, you're trying to raise venture capital and you're doing your modelling, and yes. every, every, every startup model I've ever seen looks exactly the same. At some stage, they always have a slide that says, if we just get 1%, of the population using our product, that's twenty quintillion dollars a year, and we're done. You know, we're out. Mm. Uh, and of course, most of them never get anywhere near close to that. Modeling is hard, and it's modeling. It's a fancy word for just a series of educated guesses. Really, is what you're doing when you're modeling. Mm. And that's and you know, quite often when you're doing business models, you're, you're doing it based on you know really good data that's been around for a long time, people understand what that data means and how to slice it and dice it, and still 99% of models get it wrong because their understanding of behavioural science uh, is uh, completely flaky. You know, we really don't understand why people do what they do and how to make them do what we want them to do. It's it's still a lot of black magic involved in that, let alone trying to model something as complicated as a pandemic in the early days where you have very limited data on what the pandemic is doing and how it works, or what the mm. virus is doing and how it works, I mean. Mm. Well, but I think when you're facing something like a pandemic, you really should be erring on the side of caution and where you've got a spread of possible numbers, you should really uh, assume the worst uh, is possibly going to ha- plan for the worst and hope for the best. Mm. Yes, and it was a moving target with too little data. The data was coming in all of the time. Now, rough estimates of the virus's basic reproductive number 
the R0 number, which you see comes up a lot in discussions about modeling for this. The R0 value uh, quantifies the average number of people who will get the virus from one person who is infected, how far it will spread. We didn't really know what that number was in early 2020. And there were also varying assumptions about the mortality rate, um, how many people would end up in hospital in an ICUs. And as you said, rightly so, the initial projections were worst case scenarios they built. You know, what is the worst case scenario if we don't do anything here? And in some cases, Neil Ferguson uh, confessed to this later. He really pitched the worst case scenario in order to try and spur political leadership into action to get them mm. to take it seriously. Uh, because, you know, once you've gone out there and said, if you don't do something, millions of people could die, and then they don't do anything. I know that the, the, um, Boris Johnson's uh, former 2IC, Dominic, what's his face, has come out since he's parted Cummings. ways with Boris Cummings, yeah. And and said, you know, in the early stages, Boris was like, no, nah, we're not going to lock down. And he had to, Dominic had to say, look, how do you want this as your legacy? Millions of people, you know, millions of uh, people in the UK died on your watch. How do you, how are you going to recover from that politically? And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah you're right. I, can't, I don't want that. Frame it in selfish terms. <laughs> yeah, right? He had to do it that way to get him to, to pay attention and take it seriously. But I want to point this out too. Not only were the early models wrong, even more recent models for COVID have been wrong. Also by Neil Ferguson and the Imperial College folks, his model in March 2021 said that England would see 1,400 more coronavirus deaths between March 26th and July 5, once they started to open up because they hit a level of vaccinations and they started to open up their economy. Uh, they, in fact, had 175 deaths in that period, not mm -hmm. 1,400. Mm. So even a year into it, the modelling was wrong, dramatically wrong. So I understand why people are sceptical about models, but I think it's important to understand that whilst models are wrong, like science can be wrong, it's what we do. It's what mm. we have it's, these are really smart people trying to make really good models based on tricky data. Yeah. Also, just as a matter of statistics, when you get into small numbers, then the uh, they mean less and they're more prone to error. So fourteen hundred in the scheme of things is actually a pretty small number. Um, so once you get down to small numbers, it's easy to make what seem like bigger mistakes when it's a very small fraction of something else that you're yeah. working off. So yeah, still it's it's a it's it's a projection that's way wrong, even though it's mm. you know statistically small numbers. But here's my other question: When people say, "Well, you can't trust the models," you know, my question is always, "Okay, so what should we trust then? Mm. If it's not the models, if it's not models being prepared by the leading experts in this field, who should we trust?" What's your alternative solution? Invariably, it's just some guy on YouTube, right? <laughs> or, or it's a libertarian view that says we just can't trust the government on anything. So, 
Just every man for himself? Trust, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Just don't trust the government or or mainstream media would be the other way it's Mm. phrased. Um, Mm. Mm. Yeah, our Mm. our evil overlords who are really Mm. reptilian creatures who, uh, Mm. yeah, Mm. that's... Yeah, but, you know, th- those are the same people. As soon as they break a leg, they go to hospital and uh, ask a surgeon to fix them. Like they don't yes. – they, they, I remember this with the, with the anti-vaxxer series with a raid I did a couple of years ago. When you talk to anti-vaxxers, oh, they think all the, the entire medical community is corrupt. They're all, uh, you know, lizard people. Uh, but as soon as they, you know, get a pain in their stomach or one of their kids breaks a limb, first thing they do, go to a hospital. Mm. Oh, why do you trust the doctors now? Mm. Oh, you trust the doctors to know what they're doing when it's these things, but when it's this thing over here, no, you can't trust anything doctors say. So they're all driven by big pharma, right? Anywho, look, that said, all of this, as you said earlier, like forcing people to stay at home and to wear masks if they go outside and, and, you know, wash their hands with disinfectant several times a day obviously prevents the spread or slows down the spread of communicable diseases. Um, A study in China showed that the time for the number of cases to double rose from two days to four days after they implemented lockdowns and PPE uh, mandates. Researchers estimate that the five-week lockdown in Italy prevented 200,000 hospital admissions and reduced transmission of the virus by 45%. A study of China, South Korea, Italy, Iran, France, and the USA showed that by the beginning of April 2020, lockdowns and other measures such as travel restrictions and social distancing prevented 530 million infections across those six countries. There's another study looking at interventions in 11 European countries that found the lockdowns and social distancing in the first wave uh, prevented about 3.1 million deaths across 11 countries from the beginning of the epidemic up until 4th of May 2020. So, it, look, it's very hard to debate that the lockdowns and the PPE mandates didn't prevent millions and millions of deaths around the world. But it's not that hard to construct a YouTube video that says the opposite. It's, How would it's, you go about doing that? Uh, I'm glad you asked, Cam. So um, if I wanted to prove that lockdowns don't work, then um, I would show a graph where the case numbers fall before the lockdown goes into place. And then people would say, you see, the cases were falling anyway. There was some sort of immunity had developed. But, of course, what you find in real life is that people voluntarily lock down before the official announcement. They see it coming, they know it's happening, and they're scared of being outside. So people take action before the official lockdown. But that sort of graph is used by people as evidence that that the numbers can decline without an official lockdown. So I I would show you a graph like that. The other one I would do is... By the way, I have an anecdote that points to that. My my film launch... Uh, as I've complained about before, um, happened just as lockdowns were getting announced. The one in Sydney uh, was sold out. The screening in Sydney was sold out. And on the night, this is pre-lockdowns, only half the people turned up in the cinema. They'd paid for tickets 
and only half that we we had a we had a sold out uh, two days three days earlier in Melbourne full cinema. By the time we got to Sydney in the middle of the week, half the people didn't even show up. Yep. And uh, of course, by the time we got to Brisbane a couple of days later, the cinemas had actually shut down. But yeah, a couple of days even before everything was locked down, people just weren't turning up to stuff. So I've been in arguments with people talking about the UK experience and pointing at graphs and it was all about that particular issue. The other thing I would do in my YouTube video cam is I would compare two countries, one with a a, a low lockdown severity uh, but with very low cases and another with a high lockdown severity but high cases. Now, the first one might have had a very high voluntary lockdown culture, might have been an Asian culture, and the second one, even though there was lots of government mandates, could have been filled with libertarian Americans in Florida who just ignore the rules. So, um, so you know, you could do those sorts of comparisons to demonstrate that lockdowns don't work without giving the background of why. Or um, one of those countries could be New Zealand, which eradicated COVID and has been out of lockdown. Everyone's free and easy over there, living life, living the dream, um, compared to a country that never got on top of it and has had to have rolling lockdowns periodically. So, um, so yeah, you could you could show data and graphs that create a different picture if you don't explain the underlying factors underneath. Yeah. So all the sort of facts you gave before, like anti-lockdown people would say, oh, bullshit, that's just not the case. I can show you this country. What about Belarus? I had people arguing with me about Belarus and I was like, really? Do we have to take Belarus statistics seriously? Come on. So, yeah. Well, and where I was heading with that before is I actually uh, did find legitimate scientific studies that did argue against there being any benefits of lockdowns. Um, I've got one here. uh, It's in the European Journal of Clinical Investigation. Uh, This is published January 2021. And uh, their conclusion is, in summary, we fail to find strong evidence supporting a role for more restrictive NPIs in the control of COVID in early 2020. We do not question the role of all public health interventions or of coordinated communications about the epidemic, but we fail to find an additional benefit of stay-at-home orders and business closures. The data cannot fully exclude the possibility of some benefits. However, even if they exist, these benefits may not match the numerous harms of these aggressive measures. More targeted public health interventions that more effectively reduce transmissions may be important for future epidemic control without the harms of highly restrictive measures. So that's not saying that lockdowns don't work. It's saying there could have been an alternative measure rather than lockdowns. And it's saying that there are other costs, the cost-benefit um, weighing up doesn't work is is my reading of what you just said. It didn't actually say no. lockdowns don't work. It says I don't. we don't recommend them because of what I've just said. No, it said we fail to find an additional benefit of stay-at-home orders and business closures. Yeah, it's on, not saying it doesn't of, work. It's saying the benefit, yeah. the cost benefit. No, an additional benefit, I think. Okay. Well, they're not really comparing it to they're, they're pure. They're not talking about the economic damage in this. They're talking about uh, transmission of the disease. 
Um, oh, actually, no, to be fair, I'm just going and rereading it again. There is a little bit stuff about school closures and serious harms, that kind of stuff. So there may be looking at different uh, economic stuff. But when I, but when the majority of the studies all on uh, transmission and um, hospitalization and death rates and all that kind of stuff. And NPI, by the way, for listeners, is a non-pharmaceutical intervention for controlling the spread of COVID. So business closures and lockdowns, etc. But anyway, my point of all of that was going to be, again, this gets back to how science works. So this is a classic case. There are multiple scientific studies. They can all be credible or seem to be credible to lay people like myself that give conflicting results at the end of the day. So which should we believe? Now, the easy thing to do if you just go with your cognitive bias, if you're looking for a study to validate your pre-existing biases, uh, you will find a study that says lockdowns do work and you say, well, there you go. If you're looking for studies to back up your bias, this is lockdowns don't work. You'll say, look, there you go. Neither of those is a very good way of, of being a truth seeker. You have to have some sort of heuristic, I think, that helps you determine which of the studies or which groups of studies, which meta-analysis of the studies is the one that we should pay attention to. And I'm I'm not qualified to know which study is the best study. I need to turn to someone to tell me which studies to listen to. So then I ask the question, well, who's my go-to for evidence-based medicine when it comes to COVID? Do you have a, a go-to heuristic, Trev? Oh, I've read so much on these different things. It's all over the place, really. But I've just because I'm Who a do podcaster, you believe, because I'm a podcaster with a lot of time, Cam. I've I've tended to be able to go to the source materials when people have been arguing with me, and they've they've said, "What about Sweden?" or "What about South Korea?" or "What about this?" And I've actually been able to have the time to say, "Well, the difference is this," and there's. there's I've been able to identify the factors and say, here's what's muddying the waters here. So, so you um, are your own go-to expert. Well, I'm quite widely read on this particular topic, unfortunately. So there's not one uh, area that I rely on, I guess. Um, I'll, I'll, I've had the time to sort of look at all of the arguments as they've been presented to me and, and compare them with a whole range of different um, uh, other reports and things that I've heard. Mm. I'm not you relying don't on one have, single thing. You don't have anybody that you turn to to say, okay, well, I'll just go with what they say because they're the credible body in this particular instance. Just, just overwhelmingly everything I've read that's at, at credible um, says that lockdowns work and says that mm. the cost-benefit analysis favours countries economically that enter lockdowns and that – there's no evidence in terms of mental health or suicides that, that countries who enter lockdowns are worse off than countries who don't. So just overwhelmingly every piece of stuff I see says that, and it's only the sort of crackpot sort of Ivor Cummings. Is there, you know, there's just these different uh, anti-lockdown gurus from the... from the. Is he uh, related to Ivor Mecton? I don't know. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> but overwhelmingly... Maybe invented Ivor Mecton. Overwhelmingly, the, the proper scientific reports 
agree on these things. And it's it's the okay. out, it's quite an outliers who who come up with these very strange ideas. I do. I've got four hundred hours of YouTube videos. I'd like you to watch that uh, will convince you that you're wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So, so every yeah. conspiracy theorist I know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Here, and the answer to, to that, Cam, this three-hour YouTube video. Yeah. yeah, and the answer to that, Cam, my answer to that is, what? I'm not going to watch the three hours. You tell me the very, very best argument out of that yeah. three hours. What's the one yeah. that no, I have no, no chance? No, no, you just have to go watch the whole thing. You yeah. have to watch the whole thing. Yeah, I don't have time. Just tell me the best yeah. argument, and if I can knock that one over, I won't even worry about the rest. That's my approach. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I often do is I watch the first five minutes and I go, if this is a laughable piece of crap in the first five minutes, I'm not going to watch it anymore. And it usually is. Usually in the first five minutes, they say something so ridiculous. I'm like, okay, credibility gone. What's next? Um, You know, a friend of mine um, sent me a link to a guy um, who was, you know, making cases against the mainstream. And his first, uh, you know, he had a newsletter. And the first thing he said was, uh, that uh, the CDC in the United States had pulled their PCR test because it was producing too many false positives and they were withdrawing it. I immediately went and looked it up and found you know a bunch of sources, including the CDC, saying that's not why they were pulling it. They were pulling it because they had a better one they've spent the last year developing, so they were asking doctors to stop using the old one and use the new one. Mm. And I, So immediately when the first argument from this guy was a complete load of bollocks, credibility gone, I'm not paying any more attention to anything he has to say, yep. because if you publish a load of bullshit in your first point, I don't care what your second point is. You're done. You're gone. Doesn't matter. I'm moving on to another source. But okay, so you're your own expert, which is great because you've got nothing else to do with your time. But most people aren't podcasters yet, although I think we will reach a point. (laughs) I think we are going to reach a point when everybody just does podcasts all the time. That's it. No one does anything else. And they appear on each other's podcast. Yeah. And no, none of them, I can predict this quite accurately, will give me any fucking credit or pay me any money for inventing the medium. But anyway. I feel the same way about um, my soundboard, but keep going. <laughs> Why aren't we getting along? <laughs> you know what? If you and I could get along, why does it have to be confrontation, uh, conversa- conversational? <laughs> I was in the wrong spot. Um. <laughs> Shock, gasp, no, I did not. Can you tell me about him? <laughs> but for most people, we don't have that time. We need to turn to some experts. We need a heuristic. Mm. But, look, this whole thing is a problem because the, the studies are all over the place. The evidence is all over the place. Lots of studies, lots of data, not enough people to review it all, not enough time. And reliable science takes time. But when you don't have time, when you're thrust into a pandemic, what do you do? Well, you do fast science is what they call it. Now, fast science brings a lot of problems. Is this like speed dating? It is. That's you have two minutes to, uh, to convince make an the scientists in front of you that uh, they want to have a second meeting. Um, fast science has a lot of problems, and everybody knows that scientists don't like fast science. But sometimes you're in a situation where you have to do fast science because it's an emergency, right? Um, Break open the glass of- and reach for the fast science. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's like Batman reaching for the uh, shark repellent or getting Robin (laughs) to get the shark repellent, that old 60s Batman film. Um, And, you know, that leads to things like the AstraZeneca vaccine producing blood clots, 
which, you know, the instance of that is far less worrying than you, the media and the, the um, conspiracy theorists would have you believe. But uh, it's a, still, it's a thing that is an ideal. Every vaccine, though, that's ever been made uh, has negative side effects for a very small percentage of people because people's biologies are different and they react to chemicals and medicines in different ways. Uh, so that, again, it's not really surprising, but it would be ideal if we had at least been warned about that in, in advance, but they couldn't because they were didn't have time to do enough trials and see what happened with enough people. There is a Canadian group I came across called COVID End, the COVID-19 Evidence Network to Support Decision-Making. You come across these guys and girls? No. Peoples? No. Of non-binary descriptions? Um they are trying to bring together f- more than 50 of the world's leading evidence synthesis technology assessment and guideline development groups from around the world, covering the full spectrum of pandemic response from public health measures and clinical management to si- health system arrangements and economic and social responses. It also covers the full spectrum of context where the pandemic response is playing out, including low, middle and high income countries. They're basically trying to do meta-analysis of all of the studies and provide that to policy decision-makers around the world. But they haven't got any results yet. It's getting off the ground. They're pulling together all of their people. But unfortunately, they don't have anything to report. So at the end of the day, after reviewing all of the different organizations I could find, I ended up settling on the World Health Organization, the WHO. Mm -hmm which I know has been made quite controversial in the last couple of years, thanks to Donald Trump not liking their response to COVID in the first place and his basic uh, general distrust of uh, global organisations that didn't uh, put the US first in Mm. all of their statements. But the World Health Organisation has 8,000 medical professionals, public health experts, doctors, epidemiologists, scientists, managers, Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, <laughs> a.k.a. just Dr. T, Dr. Mm. Tedros, is the current Director General um, since 2017. He's an Ethiopian biologist, the first Director General of the World Health Organization who isn't a medical doctor. He was formerly Ethiopia's Minister of Health from 2005 to 2012. Seems to have done a pretty good job from what I can tell. Uh, does have his critics, but uh, a lot of those criticisms apparently come from um, his political opponents. We He was up against an American when he was running for the director general job, and there was a lot of uh, 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 conspiracy theories about him published by his uh, opponent's campaign team. Mm-hmm. Let me have a drink. Um now, uh, I watched a press conference that he and his leading um, uh, people did uh, on the 4th of August where he was pretty critical of rich countries that are sucking up 80% of the world's vaccine supplies at the moment. High-income uh, countries have administered 100 doses of vaccines per 100 people. Low-income countries had only 1.5 doses per 100 people. Uh, I don't know what Australia is. <laughs> I think we must be down on the low end of that scale at the moment still. It's going to set back uh, low-income countries by decades, according to a lot of uh, analysis. But Dr. Maria van Kerkhove 
is the infectious disease epidemiologist who's the COVID-19 technical lead at the World Health Organization. She's an American. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is so this is the World Health Organization's positions on lockdown uh, at the moment. They say large-scale physical distancing measures and movement restrictions, often referred to as lockdowns, can slow COVID-19 transmission by limiting contact between people. However, these measures can have a profound negative impact on individuals, communities, and societies by bringing social and economic life to a near stop. Such measures disproportionately affect disadvantaged groups including people in poverty, migrants, internally displaced people and refugees who most often live in overcrowded and under-resourced settings and depend on daily labour for subsistence. Who recognises that at certain points, some countries have had no choice but to issue stay-at-home orders and other measures to buy time? Governments must make the most of the extra time granted by lockdown measures by doing all they can to build their capacities to detect, isolate, test and care for all cases, trace and quarantine all contacts, engage, empower and enable populations to drive the societal response and more. Who is hopeful that countries will use targeted interventions where and when needed based on their local situation? So how do you read all of that? That makes sense. Lots of people, of right. course, who are anti-lockdown would uh, just hate the idea of following who and they would think that it's uh, somehow controlled by evil forces and not to be trusted. So but for the rest of us, it makes perfect sense. Hey, Cam, my grandkids have come back into the house, so you might find all sorts of background noise starting to appear on our podcast here. My apologies for that if good. it comes through. So yeah. that makes sense. The, there was one thing I'd re- uh, refer people to a a thing on the web called covidfaq.co, which has a good little summary of COVID issues and uh, links to answers to those issues. Basically, it's not them giving their opinion. They're basically referring to other academic sources and saying and, and saying that... Um, they're referring to other academic sources and saying that uh, look at it, read it yourself, and make up your own mind. And I think I think my daughter's strangling one of the kids in the background. Can you hear that? <laughs> yeah, I can. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm surprised you haven't terrified them into submission yet, Trevor. Yeah. Like you don't go out there and scream and yell at them like my grandfather used to do if we were making noise while he was listening to the ABC News in the morning. Yeah, no, they've done well. They've been out of the house uh, long enough, so they're, they're back in. So that that might be. A, we might need to wrap this up, Cam, because it's going to distract me as well. How close are we? Well, uh, yeah, close. Right. Let me let me run through my, the rest of my day to them. Okay. Yeah, so the WHO seem to be saying they support them in a limited fashion, but stress the dangers that governments have to use, and governments have to use the time to uh, you know get measures into place. So it seems like a fairly balanced perspective, I think, on this. Um, as for people that immediately dismiss the WHO as being corrupt, okay. So my questions are. Give me evidence to support that. Uh, why do you believe that? And give me the evidence. And secondly, if not the who, then who? If not who, then who should we trust and listen to? Give me your source. I'll look at your source. Or you look at my source. Do you have an alternative source? Because I'm happy to get a better source. If there's a better source out there, tell me who that source is and I'll have a look at them, right? They might have a secret source, Cam. Yeah, with leaven. Mystery spices. Herbs and spices. Yeah. I can't tell you my source. It's a trade secret. 
Okay, so just wrapping up lockdowns then. If not lockdowns, then what approach Mm. should we take? Now, you mentioned uh, the Great Barrington Declaration. For people that haven't heard of that, Great Barrington is a town in Massachusetts. This is last time I looked, which was a couple of weeks ago, had 850,000 signatures on it, which is a lot of signatures. Um, It says, as infectious disease epidemiologists and public health scientists, we have grave concerns about the damaging physical and mental health impacts of the prevailing COVID-19 policies and recommend an approach we called focused protection, which basically boils down, as you said before, to protect the most vulnerable and herd immunity. The original signers were Dr. Martin Kuldorf, professor of medicine at Harvard University, a biostatistician and epidemiologist, Dr. Sunetra Gupta, professor at Oxford University, an epidemiologist, and Dr. Jay Badakaraya, professor at Stanford University Medical School, a physician and epidemiologist. Now, this was in March 2020. Uh, well, I, no, I, I was going to say in March 2020, as I said earlier, that um, that sort of position made sense to me. Um, these are three very credible-sounding people, uh, Trev, with a lot of signatories on it. So should we be taking these people seriously? Look, we should. We should, actually, examine what they're saying and see if there's anything worthwhile in it. But um, when I read that declaration, uh, I, I read it. It said here, current lockdown policies are producing devastating effects on short and long-term public health. The results, to name a few, include lower childhood vaccination rates. Like, that's their first one. When they're talking about devastating effects on short and long-term health from lockdowns, their first thing that they want to refer to is lower childhood vaccination rates. That seems really weird to me. There's nothing in Australia to prevent kids going and getting a vaccination. That just doesn't make sense to me. Their second one is worsening cardiovascular disease outcomes. That just doesn't jump out of the box to me as a result of lockdown. Um, Fewer cancer screenings. Well, let's encourage people to get their cancer screenings. Like in Australia, we can be in lockdowns but still get cancer screenings. It it just means you can still do these things but concentrate on them and deteriorating mental health. But they don't give any evidence for this. So, you know, when they want to talk about devastating effects and their first example is lower childhood vaccination rates, it just doesn't uh, cut it with me as a strong argument. I would have led with a better punch if I were them, if I had one. I mean... I don't know about every country in the world, but certainly here we weren't prevented from going to see the doctor mm. um, if during our lockdowns, even during our strictest lockdowns here in Queensland mm. recently, you weren't prevented from going to see a doctor. Doctors, I did try to get an appointment with my GP at one point. I needed a prescription and they just set up a telephone appointment for me. Arguably, our health system is functioning better. When I spoke with my GP, she said that, because people are working from home and because of telehealth, she felt she was actually giving better service to her patients in some regards than she normally mm. would. Mm. And, of course, the argument, as we've said before, is if COVID ran rampant and we didn't have lockdowns, we have you know all these hundreds of thousands to millions of people, depending on where you are in the world, in hospital, mm. uh, sick, the med- what, what, kind, what happens to 
heart health and cancer screenings and childhood immunizations when the hospitals are overflowing with COVID patients and you're, all of your medical frontline staff, doctors and nurses, are sick from COVID um, and out of action, that to me sounds like it's going to be worse for health outcomes than what we have. It's a classic example where they're wanting to compare a post-lockdown or a no-lockdown world with 2019. They're not recognising the reality of what we would be in. And as I said earlier, um, like this whole thing of just protect the vulnerable, so what about households where you have grandparents living with multiple generations of people? Research from UNSW City Futures Research Centre shows one in five Australians live in a multi-generational household, and that increases to one in four Sydney-siders who live with multiple generations of relatives. That's a lot of people that all of a sudden, well, what happens to all of those people who live in a house with their grandparents? They just, they have to lock the grandparents in a room and slide their food under the door to them. Um, That's what we do uh, here. <laughs> I, I live in a multi-generational household. Yes, you do. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. How many generations? Five? Four? four. Some four of your generations listeners. in your house. Some of your listeners might have thought that somehow I've got my shit together, but when I ex- explain to them that I live with my mother, my wife, my daughter, and my two granddaughters. <laughs> but you do it from choice. And you do live in a mansion. I've been to the Bell Mansion, and uh, it's impressive. I took I took my mother, well, took her down to the cafe regularly to have a coffee and a bite to eat, and uh, there was a guy there who was a Fijian Indian, and... Um, he pulled me aside one day and he said, does, does your mother live in a retirement home or does she live with you? And I said, oh, she lives with me. And he said, are you Italian? He said, nobody in this, <laughs> nobody in this neighbourhood lives with their parents. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so one report says in the UK it's about a third of all homes have uh, a multi-generational household. So how do you deal with that? Well, the Barrington Declaration doesn't give give any uh, tips on how you deal with this. It's mm. just, well, you just let's just do it. Mm. But there's no detail, and the devil is in the details here. And, and, and being a member of the Temple of Satan, you understand all about the devils in the details. Mm. Uh, 27 million Australians we have. So let's say one-fifth live in a multi-generational household. That's 5.4 million people live in a multi-generational household household. Uh, they all need to stay isolated while the rest of the population runs around and gets the virus. How does how does that work exactly? Where do they get food and medical supplies or just from people that already have had the virus and have antibodies? Do we have to, you know, identify those people and say, well, I, I mean, I just, it just, it, it quickly, within about five or 10 minutes of thinking seriously about it, it just completely breaks down. I can't figure mm-hmm. out logistically how you would make it Work and I, I, I spent some time searching for answers on that. I thought, well, so surely somebody has concocted a model for this. I didn't come up with anything. Have, have, have your co-host, ex-co-host, former co-hosts, given you any models for how it, that would work? It completely stumped them when I said, "How is this protecting the vulnerable going to work?" And they hmm. couldn't even begin to answer how hmm. it would work. It makes sense at a surface level, but until you think about it, and it hmm. it just falls apart very quickly. I think. Uh, and then the IFR, the Inf- 
infection fatality rate for people under the age of 64 is still pretty high. It's 0.263. Now, as we said last time, it is going to vary from country to country based on the demographic data of that country and the conditions of the country and the population density of that country and all that kind of stuff. But global average is 0.263. Now, 84% of the Australian population is under 65 so let's say we have 22 million Australians getting exposed, leaving outside all of the people that live in multi-generational households and the people with comorbidities, pre-existing conditions, that kind of stuff. 22 million by 0.263 is 58,000 people that would die um, from in order to achieve herd immunity if we all got infected, basically, mm. uh, versus the 900 and something that we have now, a two hundred and fifty mm. per one hundred thousand people. What's that? What's that line from Shrek? Some of you are going to die, but that's a sacrifice I'm prepared to make. <laughs> yeah. And what's the impact to the economy of fifty eight thousand people over and above the normal amount of people that we have die in Australia every year? Mm. Uh, de- now, yes, you might say, well, a lot of those. Well, no, this is the people under sixty five. These are working age people. Not uh, not your elderly who are also going to die, <laughs> and grandchildren that are apparently getting strangled somewhere in your house. <laughs> and plus, as I said, the health service would be overwhelmed in that scenario, leading to potentially much higher death rate amongst the rest of the population from non-COVID-related stuff. The the people with heart conditions and cancer and pneumonia and God knows what other diseases who you know, need medical care from our frontline medical staff are going to get it because the medical system is going to be overwhelmed. So the death rate there you would expect would go massively up from people dying from things that aren't necessarily as a result of COVID, just as a result of the the health system breaking down. And I think that's always been the big fear of governments around the world is if, if we wipe out our healthcare system for a year, what does that do to the country? Yeah. That's that's serious shit then, right? right? And then, of course, there's long COVID. Um, now, long COVID, I'm sure everyone has heard of it, but there seem to be there seems to be increasing amount of evidence that a fairly significant percentage of people who got COVID and recover from it have lasting effects that last we don't know how long. Really serious effects not just tiredness, but according to some new research in The Lancet, people who contracted COVID may have a substantial drop in intelligence. Uh, that When they're sitting like months and months later, they're sitting for cognitive tests, they're not doing very well. Um, this is from the paper. When examining the entire population, I think this was done in the UK, the deficits were most pronounced for paradigms that tapped cognitive functions such as reasoning, problem solving, spatial planning, and target detection, while sparing tests of simpler functions such as working memory span as well as emotional processing. These results accord with reports of long COVID where brain fog, trouble concentrating, and difficulty finding the correct words are common. Uh, Their study, here we go, we sought to confirm whether there was an association between cross-sectional cognitive performance data from 81,337 participants who between, sorry, my uh, nerd brain is going 81,337, well, in leet speak, that would be Lieb, 
if you wrote it backwards and upside down it on a calculator. So I don't know why. Uh, who between January and December 2020 undertook a clinically validated web-optimized assessment as part of the Great British Intelligence Test and questionnaire items capturing self-report of suspected and confirmed COVID-19 infection and respiratory systems. Now, I would argue that the Brits aren't too intelligent in the first place, so I would expect a very low score from mm. anyone in Britain because, of you know, obviously, most famously, they came up with the great idea that to send all of their worst prisoners to paradise on the other <laughs> side of the planet. So, but still, <laughs> natural herd immunity is uh, bad for other reasons. You know, allowing a virus to go on jumping from person to person is a significant risk. It, it encourages the evolution of new variants, as we've seen with the Delta variant. These variants can be worse, you know, and, and the more people the virus gets into, the more opportunity it has to mutate and come up with an even more contagious or even more deadly version of the virus. And I think that's something that the herd immunity people tend to ignore. Um, has you Have you uh, come across any good arguments for why herd immunity won't lead to mutation? No. <laughs> in, in, in a nutshell, no. But, um, yeah, yeah, the whole sort of Delta variant is really putting um, – just adding extra spice to the whole argument where uh, where it's accelerating so much in terms of the infection rate and seemingly it's it's also reaching into a younger cohort than the previous variations and the long COVID effects seem to be potentially worse. So it's really one of those cases where we don't know how these things are going to develop and what the next variant is going to do. And we really just have to work assuming the worst um, and hoping for the best. So we really have to be quite cautious in, in our approach to these things. Yeah. And, and you hear arguments from people, uh, and we're, I'm wrapping up, but when we, we'll, I'll talk about vaccines next time, um, when people say, well, we don't know what the long-term effects of these vaccines are going to be. And they're right. We really don't know what the long-term effects are going to be. But my counter is always, well, we don't know what the long-term effects of COVID are going to be on people's systems either. So which is worse, uh, just letting the virus run rampant and, and letting the long-term effects, effects of that emerge with people dying along the way or taking something that's been very carefully designed by scientists, brilliant people to the best of their ability that are going to prevent hospitalizations and deaths which, yes, may have long-term consequences that we aren't aware of, but what are the long-term consequences of all of our children getting COVID and the long COVID impacts on their energy levels, their intelligence levels over the course of their lives? We we really don't know what that looks like. Yeah, there's a big question mark over it. Mm. Mm. Just wrapping up, um, we're talking about uh, Sweden versus Australia, etc. Uh, I had some data. So deaths per million for Sweden, uh, 1,438. They have a case fatality rate around 1%. Australia's deaths per million, 36, uh, but a CFR of 3%. 
UK deaths per million, 1,904, and the USA's deaths per million, 1,895. So Sweden, deaths per million, if you're looking at that metric, with their sort of different approaches to handling it over the course of the last 18 months, uh, their deaths per million not as bad as the UK and the USA. Well done on torturing. Well, well done on torturing some data there, Ken. Well, well, <laughs> well done. Given given the the, not... the the range in the variation in the lockdown in Sweden, um, and the geographically different areas you've compared, and yeah, that it's was going to be my whatever, point. Whatever, whatever you wanted oh. it to say. It's, no. it's given a full confession, Ken. I, I wanted to say that all countries are different and you can see there's a big range of numbers here. But the question when people say, well, Sweden didn't do it and Sweden looks okay, well, how do you measure that? You have well, to look at it At what point up. in time? At what point in time do you measure Sweden as well? Like you've just measured well, now, overall after 18 months. Yeah, that was sure. That was the, yeah. And and really. Well, what, what, what other time frame are you going to use? Well, if, if you're putting them forward for when they were at their libertarian experiment stage, their, their actual rate at that particular time was higher than its average has been for the 18 months because they fell into line with the other countries. So... It's just what data have you chosen to pluck out at any particular time can make a big difference. Well, I'm looking again, at again. Again, I'd argue you have to compare them with their neighbours. Right. For comparison, if you want to. Okay. And do you have those death per million numbers in front of you? I don't, but I've seen them often enough. I know that they're way, <laughs> way worse than Norway and Finland and Denmark. I've seen them that often. I know they're way worse. <laughs> and I know their economies perform worse, and now they're falling into line in terms of their current rate. But that's because they've adopted the current lockdown procedures of everybody else. So that's where they're at. Let's say uh, Norway uh, deaths per million, one hundred forty-five. Finland deaths per million, one hundred seventy-nine. Uh, yeah, so far they're far better than yeah. Uh, Sweden. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thank you, Trev. That's my that's my day. That's my thoughts on lockdowns. Um, did we come to a conclusion? They definitely work in terms of limiting the spread of the mm-hmm. virus. Uh, is there evidence that they they are worse for the economy or worse for? people's mental health or suicide rates. Um, I do have data on that in in my next section, I think. But um, no, there's no evidence I've seen anyway that any of those things have gone up in any geography around the world. In um, in, So suicide rates aren't up. In fact, they're down in in many cases, surprisingly, maybe. Mm -hmm. Even alcohol consumption is down in many geographies we looked at. I would have thought alcohol consumption would have gone up. No, it went down. Um, uh, economies uh, seem to be doing okay. If you look at, like as I said, the all odds and even the um, the the um, Dow Jones. But of course, poor people, as the WHO points out, are probably going to be disproportionately affected. Um, so we'd have to look at the impacts on poor people. But again, most countries rolled out MMT financing in the West to. 
supplement incomes and provide a buffer for people if they were suffering and businesses uh, was probably mishandled in a lot of geographies. We know in Australia, a lot of churches and companies got a lot of money that they probably didn't need, but they're keeping it anyway. But um, yeah, the, the I, I've anti, seen no evidence. The anti-lockdown sort of protests, they've really missed an opportunity to say, what about just more money for the average Joe whose cafe is now closed or who can't get the work? I mean, they're, they're protesting about removing the lockdown and really what they should be protesting is there's just not enough financial support. That's that's what they should be concentrating their their objections on, but they seem to have missed that point. They've they've not uh, taken that on board. Maybe it's because that's not really why they're protesting. They're not really looking for a solution. Mm. They just want to be angry and protest. Mm. 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 All right, that's it. Thank you for joining me again, Trevor Bell. It's a pleasure. That vaccinations next week. Is that the topic? That's what I'm doing next week. Are you coming back for that? Or are you I'm not done? Sure, I'll get back to you about that one. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Trev. No worries.